We're in Acts 23 this morning, so if you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. It's been great actually going through Acts. I hope you've got this sense of this worldwide mission that's kind of starting in Jerusalem and then beginning to sweep out around the world. And uh, we've had the privilege of being caught up in this ongoing mission of God to different nations. We love to bring the gospel to those near, to neighbors, but also far away. So it's been a privilege to be involved in different situations. And really, as just stirred by this, this, uh, this series, Neighborhoods to Nations, we're starting a fund called To the Nations. And out of it, we want to stand with uh, those who are taking the gospel kind of far and wide. And I'm sure, like me, you were blessed when um, Valter and Simone came to see us. Um, for those that don't know, they were very much part of the church many years ago. Such a blessing here. Went to serve at Mark Cross, uh, our site there, and then kind of moved on, been kind of involved in, in, in church uh, in the UK. But now they're feeling to go back to the Netherlands. In fact, really, really clear, if you hear their testimony, God's spoken in a number of ways, made it really, really clear they're to go back to Nijmegen or go, go to, the, to there and plant a church. And I spoke last week about just the privilege of our togetherness and different ways that we can express that. And here is a kind of a concrete way that we can, we can express and stand with them and, in a sense, go with them. I'm sure, actually, different ones might end up going there, either short-term or long-term. But really, for all of us, here's an opportunity to stand with them financially and to give to them. I don't know if you're like me, you were stirred and challenged by the way that, actually, a couple of times over the course of their, their life, their walk with God, they've pretty much given everything away. And they say, God, we're going we're to trust you. And they're trusting God again for provision, and we have the privilege of being part of that. So just, it was just a highlight this week and next particularly, we're launching our To the Nations uh, fund. Out of that, we'll be supporting Boucher and Simone there in their church plant in Nijmegen. We'll also be looking for other opportunities as time goes on to really be part of this worldwide mission that started in Jerusalem, that Paul began to take around that region, and now is filling the earth with the glory of God as the gospel is pronounced and declared and people turn to him in faith and, uh, and find a God and a savior and a heavenly father, as we've heard about this morning, one who loves them, who cares for them, who's got good plans for them. And we want more and more people to know that. And it's God's plan that the nation should be gathered in, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So this is what our fund is for. Um, really, it's, uh, we put this on the seat kind of as a reminder of that. You can take that away, have a look at some of the details in it. You can uh, give in whatever way suits you best. It will help us if you put to the nations on it, if you're filling in this form. Or you can go to our website, and under giving, there'll be a, there's a to the nations kind of little kind of link. You click on that, that'll give you more information and different ways that you can give. But uh, do take it away. Do be thinking, do be praying. Maybe even today, you want to just, as you get home or as you go home today, just kind of click on there and say, Lord, what a, how can I be a part of this and give into what God is doing? Let's stand with Boucher and Simone and others as they take the gospel uh, to the nations. Well, we are going to continue, as I say, in our series in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, we're now in Acts chapter 23. We're just kind of coming into Acts 23. Paul has just returned from taking the gospel to the non-Jewish nations around the region. And as he's come back, there's a bit of commotion. We talked about that last week between a kind of a 
bit of a, a clash of culture between Jew and non-Jew, Jew and Gentile. And actually, the upshot of that is that Paul gets arrested. The tribune, the military kind of leader there, comes with soldiers, and they take Paul away. And he wants to find out what has actually been going on. And he has a great idea to torture him. Be, he's going to torture him to get the truth out of him, which I'm sure, well, I don't know, yeah. He's not able to do that because Paul is a Roman citizen, so he has to find another way. And his strategy is to put Paul back in front of the Jewish leaders to see and watch and listen at the discussion that takes place to try and understand what is going on. So let's read a few verses from uh, starting in Acts 22, uh, 30, and going through into Acts 23. See, on that day, desiring, this is the, the tribune, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now we'll go through to verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers, Go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood by him, stood by Paul, and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, we're going to focus particularly on one verse in this passage. We're going to focus on verse 6, which says, It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It is, or we could read it, It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And it's important to realize in doing that that this isn't just some tactical ploy that Paul, um, Paul tries to divide the council and to get himself out of trouble. It is a clever move, and in fact we read that's part of the reason why he does it. But nevertheless, it's a true statement. It's, it, it's good tactically, but it's true theologically. So I think it's worth spending a bit of time. In fact, he says it again to Felix the governor when he's standing before him. He says that he has a hope in God that there will be a resurrection it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. So he says it again. He doubles down on it. This is, this is the reality why Paul has found himself in this situation. So to help us find our way through this, we're going to ask three really very simple questions. The first is, what is Paul looking forward to? What is he looking forward to? The second is, why does he think it's going to happen? And the third is, what difference does it make in the here and now, in his life, right now, where he is. And there's an obvious implication, of course, for our lives if we ask the same questions for us. So Paul is hoping for the resurrection. That's what he's looking forward to. But what exactly does that mean? Well, some people think that when you die, all you are is molecules. Is, um, well, I kind of did some research, actually. I'm sure some of you know this already. But to the best of my ability and my calculations, if you were to um, 
carefully divide somebody up, you would find, I think there's enough phosphorus for something like 2,000 matches. If you think of us physically, and there's, I think you can make a one or two nails in terms of iron. There's iron is really important, so there's a nail there. I can't remember how many bars of soap. I suppose it depends how clean you are, but you can, you can get soap. Where we're soap in terms of our physical makeup. That's part of us. I think we're chalk. No, calcium, that's right, isn't it? We're bones. We can, uh, how much, uh, I wrote it down, how much? I think it's something like 500 pieces of chalk I calculated, but that seems a lot of chalk. Um, you can correct me off. I'm assuming it's in our bones and in our teeth, maybe. So there's chalk. People are chalk. And in terms of carbon, carbon's a real biological kind of thing, isn't it? We can make, how many pencils was it? You will never need to know this, by the way. Um, this is just out of interest. We can, uh, about 900 pencils I, I kind of calculated. So that's, if you think physically, that's what we are. And some people think that when you die, that's, that's what you're left with. That's what you have. Life ends. And, and maybe your hope is one day I might going to help someone light a fire or help someone get clean or something like that. But physically, that's all we are. It's not much of a hope, is it? It's not much of a hope. We're just physical. That was the thought of some, in fact, the thought of the Sadducees to some extent, called materialism. Paul had a better hope than that. He hoped for something more. Some people think, quite in contrast really to that, that we are, when we die, our body kind of disappears into whatever, but we, we live on as a, as a spirit. But in fact, that's all that we will ever be, kind of spiritism. And I was going to have another table here to illustrate it, but I just couldn't think of anything to illustrate it. So uh, it'd be nothing there. It's, it's, it's nothing material. It's a non-material existence. Life kind of con continues, but what life is is not connected to the material. And you get this sense of kind of these immaterial, wispy things looking in through a, a restaurant window, looking in at the physical life that's taking place, but, but having a limited access to it. It's not much of a hope, a kind of a wispy existence after our body dies. Paul has a better hope than that. Paul hopes for nothing less than a fully restored, resurrected body, a, a, a body that's reunited with our spirit. But we do have a kind of a, a physical and a spiritual aspect to us. But Paul's looking forward to nothing less than a total reuniting of these things and a restoration of the body such that it will go on forever and ever, that death will no longer have a hold on it. This is Paul's hope, that we will last forever, that we will be a whole person, not just parts of a person, but a whole being. And in fact, the whole earth will be restored to be the way that God wants it. And we will live in the flesh, albeit fully restored flesh that will last forever. This is Paul's hope. It's a grand hope. It's the best hope. He talks of the body as a seed, not as something that will be just decomposed and, and then used to make matches or soap, but the body itself as a seed that is planted when it dies, that will rise again. He says to the Corinthians, what is sown is perishable. All this stuff that we know now, the material world as we see it now. But he says, what is raised is imperishable, will last forever. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. And I don't know if you've listened to Handel's Messiah with this wonderful refrain 
the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. This is Paul's hope. This is, as he looks around the world and all its decay and its death and the tragedy that is never very far from us, he has a hope of nothing less than a total restoration of all things and us resurrected, united as a whole person. This is the hope that Paul has, that Jesus will return. The trumpet will sound. There'll be a glorious return of Jesus, this time to restore all things. The dead will be raised. This is the hope that Paul has. It's a glorious hope. It's a better hope than this. It's a better hope than that. But the issue is with hope, will it actually happen? What is the basis for this hope? Because we can all hope for things that we would like to happen. Biblically, hope is not just wishful thinking, like we might hope it's going to be sunny tomorrow. I, I wish it's going to be sunny. I have no idea. Even looking at the weather forecast, you have no idea one moment to the next. What's it going to be like? It would be nice if it was sunny. It would be good if it was sunny. I, I wish it was sunny. We could have a barbecue, do all kinds of fun things like that. That's a wish. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is more tangible. It's more certain. It's more confident. It's a confident expectation, even a knowing, if you want to put it like that, of what is to come. Paul and the apostles had seen the risen Jesus, so they had no problem that Jesus could raise the dead, that God could raise the dead. That wasn't an issue for them. Paul had seen the risen Jesus. The apostles have had breakfast with the risen Jesus. They'd poked him. They'd given him food. He'd cooked them breakfast. They'd eaten together. There was no doubt in their minds that God could raise the dead. But maybe many of us today, perhaps it's a bit more of a challenge to think that that could be the case. We haven't seen that. Maybe we can sympathize with the Sadducees. That, that just doesn't happen. All we see is the kind of the flesh and blood, the molecular. We haven't seen the miraculous. We haven't seen the dead raised, many of us. And so there's a question in, my mind, in our minds, and maybe a, a doubt, like the Sadducees. I think this is all that there is. I think this is it. Well, actually, we may not have seen the dead raised, but we do have the historical documents. If we just, even just for a moment, treat the Bible as historical documents, which would, people would agree, most people would agree, that's what they are. They were written a long time ago. They were near the events. They were written by people who knew something of the events. And if we look at, in, even in the Bible, treating it as just a historical document, we can see there's good evidence that Jesus existed, that Jesus was crucified, that his followers believed they saw him after he died, and that they were prepared to die for that belief. That alone, many wouldn't contest that, just treating the Bible as a historical document. We have the testimony of the apostles, or at least those close to the early disciples. We have the testimony of Paul and what he saw and what changed his life around because something changed his life around. He was persecuting the church. Something happened on the road to Damascus and suddenly he's kind of number one church planter. What was that? If you look at his writings, there's evidence, there's good evidence in these facts about Jesus that it's reasonable to, to think that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. It just at least points in that direction. But I want to say that biblical hope is more than reasonable inference from evidence and from the facts. It's not something different. It's something more than that. Hope is based in God's word, in what he has 
said. This is where the certainty comes from. This is where the supernatural certainty comes from, to know what the future holds. This is how hope is uh, born in us as a real thing, not just as a wishful thinking, but as a certainty that comes. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope, biblical hope, is grounded in faith. It's grounded in what God has said. And you can, as they say, take that to the bank. You can stand on that. If I think for me personally how this has worked out, there were various evidences, and I thought about it, and I talked to people, and I looked at the world as I saw it, and I began to see, do you know what? I think, I think this is God's word. I think God is faithful. And then I had to take a step, a step of faith. It's not a, a blind step, because I'd looked, I'd thought, I'd experienced certain things, I'd seen certain things. It seemed reasonable to me. But there was a point at which my, my hope, my faith, became, it became personal, not just rational. It didn't stop being rational, but it became personal as I put my trust in the person of Jesus Christ, as I trusted in God. And I said, you know what? I trust your word. The, the, the strength of my hope, the basis of my hope now is not simply in what I see, but it's in your faithfulness and your goodness. I've come into a relationship now. It's important for us to understand this is the basis of even Paul's hope, of the disciples' hope. They saw that God could raise the dead, but their hope that he would raise the dead was in what God had said in his word, in what Jesus had said to them. This was the foundation of their faith. So let's look at just one or two scriptures briefly together to encourage us and to see this hope established in us. Jesus, in fact, corrected the Sadducees who had the Old Testament or our Old Testament. And the Sadducees says, there's nothing in here about resurrection from the dead. And Jesus says, you're completely wrong about that. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. Jesus is saying the, the God of Jacob and Isaac, he's, these guys are still alive because God is not the God of the dead. And what's more, these guys are going to rise physically to receive fully what was promised to them. And there's a lot of kind of bricks and mortar stuff that was promised to them. God has not. He's, he will be faithful to his promises. Let's just touch on a few more to encourage ourselves here. Isaiah prophesied. This is kind of hundreds of years before Jesus kind of came along. Isaiah says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. Even as we look around, and it seems impossible that that would happen. Yet we have some evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, but we have God's word that says this will happen. Let that bring hope alive in you. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. This is more than this. This is a better hope than this. Awake and sing for joy, for your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. That is going to happen. That will happen. God has said it. It settles it. Let it build hope in your heart and live accordingly. Just uh, moving on to Jesus. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes, the dead will be raised. Jesus will raise us, just as his 
body was raised imperishable, so yours, through faith in Jesus, you will be raised. This is the reality for us. God speaks it, promises to us. This is the Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. Even though the body goes into this kind of stuff, it'll be reconstituted, rebuilt, imperishable, perfect, enduring forever and ever and ever for us to enjoy an ongoing eternal relationship with God. I want to just finish on my last point now. How is Paul living now in the light of it? He has this hope. It is more than wishful thinking. It is based not simply in what he's seen with his eyes, but in what God has said, which means actually you can see things that you don't see with your eyes anymore once you know what God has said. So how does it, did it change Paul's present experience? Well, yes, it did because he's on trial right now. It is because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that Paul is on trial. It completely changed the course of his life. But I want to touch upon a couple of things, just um, mindful of time here. Just two things that I felt were helpful in terms of thinking about hope and its effect on us in the present. The first is that hope helps us live in the good of what is to come. Hope helps us live now in the good of what is to come. Sometimes faith and fear are contrasted, and I think that's good. I've done that myself. It's helpful. But I think, actually, hope and fear are more exact opposites. Do you think how fear works? You're thinking that something bad is going to happen. What happens when you start thinking about that bad thing that's going to happen? Your, perhaps your palms start to go a bit sweaty. Perhaps your knees start to... to do, do the knees really knock? Or is that just in comics? Anyway, maybe, maybe you're, whatever it is, you start to get nervous physically. Maybe your stomach starts to churn. You're beginning to live now in the expectation, in fact, the reality of the future that you're expecting to happen. Fear kind of manifests in the present. And that's a good thing in some ways because it brings to your, to your experience the future in such a way that you take action. Well, hope works in a similar way, at least psychologically it works, and even spiritually it works in a similar way. We have a hope and expectation for something good in the future. And that, that hope begins to manifest itself in our present as we kind of live in the good of that thing that we know is going to happen. So fear and hope work in this way. They're kind of like psychological and spiritual a means by which the future or the expected future is brought forward and we live in the, either the bad of it or the good of it. A difference is, though, it seems to me, that we're meant to respond to fear in the short term. Fear is good because you can reverse from something. I don't know, you, you turn around and you can reverse it. Something bad is coming. We need to react to it. It's good that we feel this way short term because we don't want that to happen, so we reverse but the trouble is with reverse gear is, I don't know if anyone's tried to drive along motorways in reverse, but it, it, you get burnt out. And I don't know. I, no, I haven't done it. But you will get burnt out. In fact, it, I, quite, I like the noise of reverse gear, which is why I quite driving in reverse gear. But it's kind of like, But that's the noise of an engine getting burnt out. You're not supposed to drive in reverse for very long. Helpful in emergencies, but not long term. We are meant to motor forward, to be driven forward with hope. That's the way we're supposed to live. That's the way we're designed to live our day-to-day -day lives with a hope 
an expectation about what is to come, not in fear. You get burnt out. If you're living with hope, there's a strength that comes to you and an energizing that comes to you. Hope brings this future to us now such that we have an experience of it now, such that we take decisions in the light of it right now. Maybe just illustrate it with a natural example. If you want to win a race, you'll train hard, I suspect. But just see the different ways that can work out. If I'm fearful, I will train in order not to lose. That's a hard way to train. I'm fearful of losing. So really my training is characterized by fear. This bad thing, I'm imagining me losing, and that is motivating my hard work. That's how fear works. It's actually draining. We might think that hope is, if I train hard, hard I will win. That's closer to what hope is, but it's not biblical hope. If I train hard enough, I will win. It's the kind of the thing is in the balance. If I just really, really apply myself, I'm going to win. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is, I will win. Therefore, I will train hard. I will win. Therefore, I will train hard. You see the difference it makes? The training, the hard work, the pain even, the difficulty, the cost is actually being characterized by an experience of the future good now. And this is what Paul was living in. Yes, there was a cost to pay. Yes, there were difficulties. Yes, there were challenges. But he was living with an experience of this future hope that he had. He, could, he was making decisions in the light of it. And in fact, God's love was being poured into his heart even as he did. Because here's the second thing I want to say about hope. Yes, hope is for hard times. But there's something a little bit more as I looked into it that I want to share with you. Paul writes to the Romans, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us. Do you see what's going on? In the hard time, hope is being produced as we trust in God. When the difficulties come, therefore hope begins to burst into life. It's, it's precisely for the difficult times, and it's given and produced by God in us in such a way that it's, it helps with the difficult times. If you're going through challenges right now, uh, God wants you to know, he wants to encourage you that this is, this is what hope is for. Who hopes for what he already has? We hope for what we don't have. We grieve often, but we hope at the same time. And as we do, God's love is poured into our hearts. It's like one of those garage lights. Do you know, when it gets dark, dark enough, if they're plugged in to the mains, they switch on. That's what hope is like. When things get difficult, when challenge comes, if you're plugged into God, if you're trusting in him, hope comes alive. Even in difficult circumstances, not to remove the grief. We feel these things together, don't we, often, now and not yet. But it's hope that enables us to keep going. It's hope that enables us to experience even now something of the good things that God has for us in the future as he pours his love into our hearts and we look forward to nothing less than the total restoration of all things and the raising of our bodies to be united with Jesus when he returns. I'd like to invite the band back. Paul was on trial because he wanted everybody to have this hope. He wanted to say to them, but please don't think it's like this. Please don't think like the Sadducees that it's like this. And please don't think that it's like this. This, this is not a good hope. There's a better hope. 
That's why he went around the world. That's why we stand with Bauter and Simone and others, that everyone would know from every tongue and tribe and culture that there's a better hope, that it's not just how things look as we look around the world, that everything will change in a twinkling of an eye. It'll all change, and we know it because we've got to set it. We have this hope. We can point to evidence in history, but God has spoken, and we have this certain hope, and we want others to know it too, like Paul. And perhaps like Paul, we're prepared to risk even current comfort because of what's to come, even having a taste now of what's to come. The Holy Spirit gives us a down payment, a taster of the future glory that awaits us. So like Paul, we can experience hardship. Maybe like Paul, we're even prepared, you know what, prepared to risk this mortal body because I know it's a seed. One day all of us will be planted in that way. We'll be in the ground. But those of us who trust in Jesus, there's a hope that when he returns, we'll rise. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Sown in, I mean, dishonor just with dirt and it's just raised in glory. And everyone will see what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished. As those multitudes around the throne from every tribe and tongue and nation. I need to tell you though that it's not just that those who trust in Jesus that will be raised. For those outside of Christ, for those that don't have this hope, there is a resurrection. But sadly, it's a resurrection to judgment for the things that have been done in the body. Because God's a just God. And in fact, we have that hope, don't we, that, that justice will be done. And justice will be done. Because God is good and holy. And you will see that justice is done. But if that's you and you, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you don't have this hope, I want to encourage you, maybe just reverse up a little, back up a little, and think again, look again. Look again at the evidence. Look again at what God has said. And maybe this hope will be born in your heart too. A better hope than ending up one day just in a pencil or being banged into a piece of wood or just wisping about. That you'll be there when Jesus comes back, that you'll be raised when the trumpet sounds. And as you're standing before God, even though like us, like me, you've messed up, it's Jesus' righteousness that's credited to you. It's Jesus' death that was for you. There's no longer a death for you. Death is about separation. There's no longer a separation that needs to take place. Justice has already been done through your faith being uniting you to Christ. And so those of us who put our trust in Jesus look forward to that day, that resurrection. There's no fear. There is no fear. We can, as we've sung this morning, we have confidence that we belong to him. Where does that confidence come from? It comes from God's word because he said it. If you believe in me, if you trust in me, even though you die, you'll live. And we know we're going to be raised to eternal life. Living is not just about the body, physical body, though it will be. It's about living in relationship with God and knowing his love day by day poured into your heart as we live that out in a physical, recreated, restored world that if, if there are any hints that I can see will shine with the glory of God. And you will too. You put your trust in Jesus. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we thank you for each and every one here today called out 
from the nations to worship you, to know you, to love you. Lord, we thank you for this hope that we have, not just decomposed in the grave and that's it, that you will raise us when you come again, that we will be restored, body and spirit, that you'll restore all things. I pray, Lord, that you would give that hope to those that don't have it this morning. As they, as they look at the evidence, as they look at your word, Lord, just as many of us, this hope was born in us. Lord, give that hope to others here as a gift this morning as they trust you. Lord, we pray, even as has been prayed already and we've said already, for those that need hope, many challenges, I'm sure, being experienced today and every day, people walking through tragedy and difficulty and hardship. God, we thank you that we have a hope that one day you will restore all things. And it's not something lesser that you're going to do, it's something more. It's the physical restoration, eternal restoration of all things. The people we'll see again. We'll see you again, Lord Jesus, in the flesh. And we thank you for this hope. And we pray, God, your spirit upon us to share it with others, even at a cost, even at a price. Lord, may we be those that know now, that live now, something of the good that we hope for. This certain hope that's in our future. Lord, may by the Spirit we taste and experience it now. I pray now for a wonderful experience and knowledge of your love to be right across this place. That your love will be shed abroad in our hearts as we trust you, as we have this hope and walk with this hope lighting our path. Lord, that each one here would know the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, his heights and breadths and depth. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your fatherly care and kindness to us. And pray we take this hope with us to the nations in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship him together.